Hey everybody, welcome back to another World Audiobooks. Hope you are all having a wonderful Sunday so far. It's so good to be back here with another episode of Tarzan, The Return of Tarzan. We already did Tarzan, the the first Tarzan book. If you haven't listened to that, make sure to go back and check it out. It is in the backlist of the podcast, or you can actually go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com and there's a little uh, icon where you can request a free audiobook. And yes, I am that nice. I will send you a free audiobook. So just go to Another World Audiobooks, request a free audiobook. It'll ask you which audiobook you want. Then you can just request the, the first Tarzan book, and I will send it right over to you. No questions asked for free. So, well, I might ask a question. I usually I love to ask people, like, how did you hear about the podcast? So, speaking of which... I need to give a huge shout out to Renee from Facebook who got in touch with me. It was just completely made my day. She sent a message. We'll read it real quick for you. She said, thank you. I quit listening uh, to Scribd because I realized that they were charging me a monthly fee. Oh no. Uh, I first listened to Pride and Prejudice. Now I'm marking my way through Sherlock Holmes. I really appreciate what you're doing. Smiley face emoticon. I love books, but I rarely have time to read. Having them read to me during my commute is awesome. So thank you, Renee, so much for sending that. Uh, uh, just so makes my day to hear from listeners. Really, really love it. And uh, if you want to get a shout out on the show, go ahead and uh, get in touch with me. All the links are down in the show notes below. You can reach out to me, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter. We've got uh, and through the website as well. So get in touch with me. I'll love to hear from you. Love to hear from you. Thank you again, Renee, for getting in touch. All right. So now without further ado, let's get into the next chapter of The Return of Tarzan. Chapter 12. Ships that pass. Let us go back a few months to the little windswept platform of a railway station in northern Wisconsin. The smoke of forest fires hangs low over the surrounding landscape, its acrid fumes smarting the eyes of a little party of six, who stand waiting the coming train that is to bear them away toward the south. Professor Archimedes Q. Porter, his hands clasped beneath the tails of his long coat, paces back and forth under the ever-watchful eye of his faithful secretary, Mr. Samuel T. Philander. Twice within the past few minutes, he has started absent-mindedly across the tracks in the direction of a nearby swamp, only to be rescued and dragged back by the tireless Mr. Philander. Jane Porter, the professor's daughter, is in strained and lifeless conversation with William Cecil Clayton and Tarzan of the Apes. Within the little waiting room, but a bare moment before, a confession of love and a renunciation had taken place that had blighted the lives and happiness of two of the party, but William Cecil Clayton, Lord Greystoke, was not one of them. Behind Miss Porter hovered the motherly Esmeralda. She too was happy, for was she not returning to her beloved Maryland? Already she could see dimly through the fog of smoke the murky headlights of the oncoming engine. The men began to gather up the hand baggage. Suddenly, Clayton exclaimed, "'By Jove, I've left my ulster in the waiting room,' and hastened off to fetch it. "'Goodbye, Jane,' said Tarzan, extending his hand. "'God bless you.' "'Goodbye,' replied the girl faintly. "'Try to forget me. No, not that. I could not bear to think that you had forgotten me.' "'There is no danger of that, dear.' He answered, I wish to heaven that I might forget. It would be so much easier than to go through life always remembering what might have been. You will be happy, though. I'm sure you shall. You must be. You may tell the others of my decision to drive my car on to New York. 
I don't feel equal to bidding Clayton goodbye. I want always to remember him kindly, but I fear that I am too much of a wild beast yet to be trusted too long with the man who stands between me and the one person in all the world I want. As Clayton stooped to pick up his coat in the waiting room, his eyes fell on a telegraph blank lying face down upon the floor. He stopped to pick it up, thinking it might be a message of importance which someone had dropped. He glanced at it hastily, and then, suddenly, he forgot his coat, the approaching train, everything but that terrible little piece of yellow paper in his hand. He read it twice before he could fully grasp the terrific weight of meaning that it bore to him. When he had picked it up, he had been an English nobleman, the proud and wealthy possessor of vast estates. A moment later, he had read it, and he knew that he was an untitled and penniless beggar. It was Daonot's cablegram to Tarzan, and it read, Fingerprints prove you are Greystoke. Congratulations. Daonot. He staggered as though he had received a mortal blow. Just then, he heard the others calling to him to hurry. The train was coming to a stop at the little platform. Like a man dazed, he gathered up his ulster. He would tell them about the cablegram when they were all on board the train. Then... He ran out onto the platform, just as the engine whistled twice in the final warning that precedes the first rumbling jerk of coupling pins. The others were on board, leaning out from the platform of a pullman, crying to him to hurry. Quite five minutes elapsed before they were settled in their seats, nor was it until then that Clayton discovered that Tarzan was not with them. "'Where is Tarzan?' he asked Jane Porter. "'In another car?' "'No.' she replied. At the last minute, he determined to drive his machine back to New York. He is anxious to see more of America than is possible from a car window. He is returning to France, you know. Clayton did not reply. He was trying to find the right words to explain to Jane Porter the calamity that had befallen him, and her. He wondered just what the effect of his knowledge would be on her. Would she still wish to marry him, to be plain Mrs. Clayton? Suddenly, the awful sacrifice which one of them must make loomed large before his imagination. Then came the question, will Tarzan claim his own? The ape-man had known the contents of the message before he calmly denied knowledge of his parentage. He had admitted that Carla, the ape, was his mother. Could it have been for love of Jane Porter? There was no other explanation which seemed reasonable. Then, having ignored the evidence of the message, was it still not reasonable to assume that he meant never to claim his birthright? If this were so, what right had he, William Cecil Clayton, to thwart the wishes, to balk the self-sacrifice of this strange man? If Tarzan of the Apes could do this thing to save Jane Porter from unhappiness, why should he, to whose care she was entrusting her whole future, do aught to jeopardize her interests? And so he reasoned, until the first generous impulse to proclaim the truth and relinquish his titles and his estates to their rightful owner was forgotten beneath the mass of sophistries which self-interest had advanced. But during the balance of the trip, and for many days thereafter, he was moody and distraught. Occasionally the thought obtruded itself that possibly, at some later day, Tarzan would regret his magnanimity and claim his rights. Several days after they reached Baltimore, Clayton broached the subject of an early marriage to Jane. "'What do you mean by early?' she asked. "'Within the next few days. I must return to England at once. 
I want you to return with me, dear. I can't get ready so soon as that, replied Jane. It will take a, a whole month at least. She was glad, for she hoped that whatever called him to England might still further delay the wedding. She had made a bad bargain, but she intended carrying her part loyally to the bitter end. If she could manage to secure a temporary reprieve, though, she felt that she was warranted in doing so. His reply disconcerted her. "'Very well, Jane,' he said. "'I am disappointed, but I shall let my trip to England wait a month. Then we can go back together.' But when the month was drawing to a close, she found still another excuse upon which to hang a postponement, until at last, discouraged and doubting, Clayton was forced to go back to England alone. The several letters that passed between them brought Clayton no nearer a consummation of his hopes than he had been before, and so it was that he wrote directly to Professor Porter and enlisted his services. The old man had always favoured the match. He liked Clayton, and, being an old southern family, he put rather an exaggerated value on the advantage of a title, which meant little or nothing to his daughter. Clayton urged that the professor accept his invitation to be his guest in London, an invitation which included the professor's entire little family, Mr. Philander, Esmeralda, and all. The Englishman argued that once Jane was there, and home ties had been broken, she would not so dread the step which she had so long hesitated to take. So, the evening that he received Clayton's letter, Professor Porter announced that they would leave for London the following week. But once in London, Jane Porter was no more tractable than she had been in Baltimore. She found one excuse after another, and when, finally, Lord Tennington invited the party to cruise around Africa in his yacht, she expressed the greatest delight in the idea, but absolutely refused to be married until they had returned to London. As the cruise was to consume a year at least, for they were to stop for indefinite periods at various points of interest, Clayton mentally anathematized Tennington for ever suggesting such a ridiculous trip. It was Lord Tennington's plan to cruise through the Mediterranean and the Red Sea to the Indian Ocean, and thus down the East Coast, putting in at every port that was worth the seeing. And so it happened that on a certain day, two vessels passed in the Strait of Gibraltar. The smaller, a trim white yacht, was speeding toward the east, and on her deck sat a young woman who gazed with sad eyes upon a diamond-studded locket which she idly fingered. Her thoughts were far away, in the dim, leafy fastness of a tropical jungle, and her heart was with her thoughts. She wondered if the man who had given her the beautiful bauble that had meant so much more to him than the intrinsic value which he had not even known could ever have meant to him was back in his savage forest. And upon the deck of the larger vessel, a passenger steamer passing toward the east, a man sat with another young woman, and the two idly speculated upon the identity of the dainty craft gliding so gracefully through the gentle swell of the lazy sea. When the yacht had passed, the man resumed the conversation that her appearance had broken off. Yes, he said. I like America very much, and that means, of course, that I like Americans, for a country is only what its people make it. I met some very delightful people while I was there. I recall one family from your own city, Miss Strong, whom I like particularly, Professor Porter and his daughter. Jane Porter? exclaimed the girl. Do you mean to tell me that you know Jane Porter? Why, she is the very best friend I have in the world. We were little children together. We have known each other for ages. Indeed, 
he answered, smiling. You would have difficulty in persuading anyone of the fact who had seen either of you. I will qualify the statement then, she answered with a laugh. We have known each other for two ages, hers and mine. But seriously, we are as dear to each other as sisters, and now that I am going to lose her, I am almost heartbroken. Going to lose her? exclaimed Tarzan. Why, what do you mean? Oh, yes, I understand. You mean that now that she is married and living in England, you will seldom, if ever, see her? Yes, replied she. And the saddest part of it all is that she is not marrying the man she loves. Oh, it is terrible. Marrying from a sense of duty. I think it is perfectly wicked, and I told her so. I felt so strongly on the subject that, although I was the only person outside of blood relations who was to have been asked to the wedding, I would not let her invite me, for I should not have gone to witness the terrible mockery. But Jane Porter is peculiarly positive. She has convinced herself that she is doing the only honorable thing that she can do, and nothing in the world will ever prevent her from marrying Lord Greystoke, except Greystoke himself, or death. I am sorry for her, said Tarzan. And I am sorry for the man she loves, said the girl. For he loves her. I never met him, but from what Jane tells me, he must be a very wonderful person. It seems that he was born in an African jungle, and brought up by fierce anthropoid apes. He had never seen a white man or woman until Professor Porter and his party were marooned on the coast right at the threshold of his tiny cabin. He saved them from all manner of terrible beasts, and accomplished the most wonderful feats imaginable. And then, to cap the climax, he fell in love with Jane, and she with him, though she never really knew it for sure, until she had promised herself to Lord Greystoke. Most remarkable, murmured Tarzan, cudgeling his brain for some pretext upon which to turn the subject. He delighted in hearing Hazel Strong talk of Jane, but when he was the subject of the conversation, he was bored and embarrassed. But he was soon given a respite, for the girl's mother joined them, and the talk became general. The next few days passed uneventfully. The sea was quiet, the sky was clear, the steamer ploughed steadily on toward the south without pause. Tarzan spent quite a little time with Miss Strong and her mother. They whiled away their hours on deck, reading, talking, or taking pictures with Miss Strong's camera. When the sun had set, they walked. One day, Tarzan found Miss Strong in conversation with the stranger, a man he had not seen on board before. As he approached the couple, the man bowed to the girl and turned to walk away. "'Wait, Monsieur Thurin,' said Miss Strong. "'You must meet Mr. Caldwell. We are all fellow passengers and should be acquainted.' The two men shook hands. As Tarzan looked into the eyes of Monsieur Thurin, he was struck by the strange familiarity of their expression. "'I have had the honour of Monsieur's acquaintance in the past, I am sure,' said Tarzan. "'Though I cannot recall the circumstances.' Monsieur Thurin appeared ill at ease. "'I cannot say, monsieur,' he replied. "'It may be so. I have had that identical sensation myself when meeting a stranger.' "'Monsieur Thurin has been explaining some of the mysteries of navigation to me,' explained the girl. Tarzan paid little heed to the conversation that ensued. He was attempting to recall where he had met Monsieur Thurin before. That it had been under peculiar circumstances he was positive— Presently, the sun reached them, and the girl asked Monsieur Thurin to move her chair farther back into the shade. Tarzan happened to be watching the man at the time, and noticed the awkward manner in which he handled the chair. His left wrist was stiff. 
That clue was sufficient. A sudden train of associated ideas did the rest. Monsieur Thurin had been trying to find an excuse to make a graceful departure. The lull in the conversation following the moving of their position gave him an opportunity to make his excuses. Bowing low to Miss Strong and inclining his head to Tarzan, he turned to leave them. Just a moment, said Tarzan. If Miss Strong will pardon me, I will accompany you. I shall return in a moment, Miss Strong. Monsieur Thurin looked uncomfortable. When the two men had passed out of the girl's sight, Tarzan stopped, laying a heavy hand on the other's shoulder. What is your game now, Rokoff? he asked. I am leaving France, as I promised you, replied the other in a surly voice. I see you are, said Tarzan, but I know you so well that I can scarcely believe that you being on the same boat with me is purely a coincidence. If I could believe it, the fact that you are in disguise would immediately disabuse my mind of any such idea. Well, growled Rokoff with a shrug. I cannot see what you are going to do about it. This vessel flies the English flag. I have as much right to be on board her as you, and from the fact that you are booked under an assumed name, I imagine that I have more right. We will not discuss it, Rokov. All I wanted to say to you is that you must keep away from Miss Strong. She is a decent woman. Rokov turned scarlet. If you don't, I shall pitch you overboard, continued Tarzan. Do not forget that I am just waiting for some excuse. Then he turned on his heel and left Rokov standing there, trembling with suppressed rage. He did not see the man again for days, but Rokov was not idle. In his stateroom with Paulvich, he fumed and swore, threatening the most terrible of revenges. I would throw him overboard tonight, he cried. Were I sure that those papers were not on his person? I cannot chance pitching them into the ocean with him. If you were not such a stupid coward, Alexis, you would find a way to enter his stateroom and search for the documents. Horvich smiled. You are supposed to be the brains of this partnership, my dear Nicholas, he replied. Why do you not find the means to search Monsieur Caldwell's stateroom, eh? Two hours later, fate was kind to them, for Paulvich, who was ever on the watch, saw Tarzan leave his room without locking the door. Five minutes later, Rokov was stationed where he could give the alarm in case Tarzan returned, and Paulvich was deftly searching the contents of the ape-man's luggage. He was about to give up in despair when he saw a coat which Tarzan had just removed. A moment later, he grasped an official envelope in his hand. A quick glance at its contents brought a broad smile to the Russian's face. When he left the stateroom, Tarzan himself could not have told that an article in it had been touched since he left it. Paulvich was a past master in his chosen field. When he handed the packet to Rokov in the seclusion of their stateroom, the larger man rang for a steward and ordered a pint of champagne. We must celebrate, my dear Alexis, he said. It was luck, Nicholas, explained Paulvich. It is evident that he carries these papers always upon his person. Just by chance, he neglected to transfer them when he changed coats a few minutes since. But there will be the deuce to pay when he discovers his loss. I am afraid that he will immediately connect you with it. Now that he knows that you are on board, he will suspect you at once. It will make no difference whom he suspects after tonight, said Rokov with a nasty grin. After Miss Strong had gone below that night, Tarzan stood leaning over the rail looking far out to sea. Every night he had done this since he had come on board, 
Sometimes he stood thus for an hour, and the eyes that had been watching his every movement since he had boarded the ship in Algiers knew that this was his habit. Even as he stood there this night, those eyes were on him. Presently, the last straggler had left the deck. It was a clear night, but there was no moon. Objects on deck were barely discernible. From the shadows of the cabin, two figures crept stealthily upon the ape-man from behind. The lapping of the waves against the ship's sides, the whirring of the propeller, the throbbing of the engines, drowned the almost soundless approach of the two. They were quite close to him now, and crouching low, like tacklers on a gridiron. One of them raised his hand and lowered it, as though counting off seconds. One, two, three. As one man, the two leaped for their victim. Each grasped a leg, and before Tarzan of the apes, lightning though he was, could turn to save himself, he had been pitched over the low rail and was falling into the Atlantic. Hazel Strong was looking from her darkened port across the dark sea. Suddenly, a body shot past her eyes from the deck above. It dropped so quickly into the dark waters below that she could not be sure of what it was. It might have been a man. She could not say. She listened for some outcry from above, for the all-fearsome call, Man Overboard, but it did not come. All was silence on the ship above. All was silence in the sea below. The girl decided that she had but seen a bundle of refuse thrown overboard by one of the ship's crew, and a moment later sought her berth. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I guess we could just assume that they were, like, really upset that Tarzan hadn't bathed recently. Or, like, hey, buddy, we're just helping you out here. And give him a little little bath, a little evening bath. Could be. Probably not. But it could be. Thanks, guys, so much for listening today. I really appreciate it. Again, huge thanks to, to Renee for getting in touch with the show. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if, if any of you as listeners have uh, done a podcast before, or really done anything. You put out it, you put it out into the world, and you, you never really know. You know, what are, what are people thinking? So it's, it's not that I, I, I'm caring what, what people are thinking as much as I just want to know what you're thinking. So I, I just love to hear one way or the other. If there's things that I can do to improve the podcast, I would just make my day to hear a suggestion. I just love to hear from you. Just so get in touch. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to check out the website, anotherworldaudiobooks.com. There is a free audiobook on there, but there's also ways to support the podcast. Uh, this is a labor of love. We have uh, an awesome uh, person who's helping me with some of the editing for free, which is amazing. Like, uh, they're, yeah, just an incredible uh, human beings, and I cannot thank you them enough, but I would love to be able to say thank you to them with, with some money. <laughs> it's usually more meaningful than just saying thank you. Um, so if you want to support the podcast, um, we've we got some really cool merch. I don't know if you guys have checked out the store, um, but go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com and click on the merch thing. There's some really awesome designs. Those are all stuff that I've hand-drawn myself. Um, there's also uh, the Patreon, where you can uh, become a patron of the show and you can get some really awesome deals that way. Um, there's some, some cool giveaways and free merch through that. Um, and then, yeah, you can advertise on the show. All, all kinds of options. So, get in touch with me through the website there. And, uh, yeah, but like 
guys always say, telling other people about the podcast. That is the biggest thing that you can do. Share it on your social media. Tag me. I'll I'll send some social media all of your way. So thanks again, guys, for listening, and I will catch you next week. When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist.